Welcome to Tisky Sour. We have three massive stories for you this evening. Colombia has elected its first ever leftist president. We're also going to talk closer to home about the Conservative Party making up various lies and giving misleading statements about the RMT who are about to go on strike. And we're talking about the story, the scoop of the weekend that disappeared. It was about Boris Johnson and Carrie Johnson, then Carrie Simmons, um, and the Times published it and then unpublished it. We're going to discuss why, what happened there. You'll be delighted to know, joining me this evening, back on the show, is Barnaby Rain. How are you doing, Barnaby? I am always glad to be here, Michael. It's cheered me right up. Lovely to see you. Lovely to see you too. You will be seeing more of Barnaby over the next week. I'll be explaining why at the end of the show. Colombia has elected a new president. His name is Gustavo Petro, and he has had a pretty interesting life, to say the least. At age 17, he joined M19, a revolutionary guerrilla group engaged in an armed struggle to bring about democratic reforms in Colombia. As part of that struggle, he spent 18 months in prison on arms charges. But in 1990, M19 abandoned armed struggle in favour of electoral pursuits. Petro was elected a representative to Colombia's parliament and went on to become mayor of Colombia's capital city, Bogota. He has won the presidency backed by a broad coalition of left-wing parties. And after that victory, thousands gathered in Bogota to celebrate the end of decades of right-wing rule. Petro ran on a platform of environmentalism, racial justice and anti-neoliberalism, with his manifesto including policies such as free university education, pension reform and an end to new oil exploration. Petro has also promised to tackle growing political violence and widespread poverty, and these pledges proved very popular. Petro won 40% in the first round of the presidential elections two weeks ago. That was 12 points higher than his closest competitor. And in yesterday's second round, Petro scored 50.5%. He got 700,000 more votes than his opponent, the business tycoon Rodolfo Hernandez. A much larger margin than many expected. Last night was also another historic first for Colombia because Petro's running mate, Francia Marquez, became Colombia's first black vice president-elect. She is also Colombia's second woman to achieve such high office. A former living maid and single mother, Marquez rose to political prominence through her environmental activism, arguing on behalf of Colombia's oppressed and impoverished Afro-Colombian and indigenous populations. Earlier, I spoke to David Adler, General Coordinator of the Progressive International. I began by asking him whether Petro's win came as a surprise. Petro's victory last night, it comes as a huge surprise for Colombia, for Latin America, for the world, not only because Colombia has never in its history had a progressive government at its helm in history, but also because it was very difficult to see how Gustavo Petro and Francio Marquez were going to pull off this victory. And in fact, the only way they pulled it out was by having unprecedentedly high levels of turnout in the entire periphery of the country, some of the most poor and marginalized communities anywhere through the Pacific and the Caribbean, uh, all the way to the Amazon, really calling out the pueblo, the people of this country, to come and support uh, a change, the politics of change, of love, of life that were being proposed by Gustavo Petro and Francia Marquez in the course of this campaign. One of the reasons this win is so impressive for Petro is because Colombia has never had 
a left-wing president before. Now, that itself really needs some explanation. We know that there have been pink tides in Latin America already, left-wing governments in the, the late 90s and noughties. Why did Colombia miss that? Why has Colombia been so dominated by the right? The best way to understand Colombian politics is through Colombia as the kind of crowned jewel of U.S. empire, really critical to the so-called Monroe Doctrine, by which the United States has decided that it has a historic right to dominate the affairs of its hemisphere. And so over the course of over a century of Colombian politics, that involved a lot of shipments of arms, involved basically funneling wealth and military support to paramilitaries across Colombia, most frequently known as Plan Colombia. That was the plan developed by George W. Bush in the early 2000s to support then-President Álvaro Uribe that led to death squads, massacres, and immense repression of progressive forces across the country. And so Colombia has always been seen as the final stronghold for U.S. proto-imperial or outright imperial control over South America. And that is why it's such a historic victory and such a slap in the face to uh, centuries of colonial and then neo-colonial. And what kind of president will Petro be? Is he you know, a radical leftist? Is this a center-left government? What should, we, what should we expect? Petro's program has been described by him as being a, a politics of life. That's a politics of life in two different respects. A politics of life in terms of restarting a peace process that was effectively abandoned by the last president, Ivan Duque. Colombia is a country that has been caught in a civil war that has cost so many thousands of lives. I mentioned the Plan Colombia and the way that the United States is complicit in the inflammation of violence and civil war across Colombia. But Petro is very committed to restarting the peace process and ending the wave of massacres of social leaders and peasant leaders and trade unionists that sustains to this day with the tacit endorsement of the Uribistas, of the Ivan Duque and his predecessors, uh, Uribe. That's part of the politics of life. And the other part of the politics of life is about ecology. It's about phasing out of fossil fuels. It's about bringing a more environmentalist perspective uh, and standing up to fossil fuel interests and extraction across Colombia to defend you know, the, the kind of good living, buen vivir, as they say, vivir sabroso, tasty living that he thinks are due to all Colombians. So there's a piece on the peace process. There's a piece on the ecological transition. And then there's kind of a standard set of social democratic investment policies. One is about uh, investing in pensions for vulnerable old people. One is about protecting single mothers and mothers in general, so having more state support for the family. And finally, it's about expanding tertiary education by providing more investment in the university system. And so you mentioned that environmentalism moving away from oil, that seems to put Petro in distinction to, or in, in contradistinction to, for example, Chavez, Maduro after him or AMLO in Mexico have all gone pretty hard on, on using oil as a, as a fuel for the economy and exporting oil as, as a way of getting foreign currency. How different is Petro to those other Latin American left-wing leaders? So I think this conversation often has overstatement in both directions. There's an overstatement to the extent to which the pink tide was basically just Petro-funded and entirely addicted to oil. It was certainly a huge part of how these governments were able to sustain, to fund and service their social programs. But that has a lot to do with basic structural constraints, a dollar hegemonic system, which makes development very difficult under the thumb of the United States and its intention to basically underdevelop the hemisphere. So I think that there's more room for, have, for us to have a detailed conversation about shades of petro-politics 
in the pink tide and ways in which many of those governments, I think, for example, of Rafael Correa in Ecuador, tried to maneuver out of that resource trap to invest in digital technology, to invest in tertiary education, to try to get their countries moving on a developmental track that was more sustainable in the first case. There's an overstatement to the extent to which Petro really is breaking with the mold. He's not saying, you know, we have to basically stop using oil, gas, coal right now. He's trying to say, you know, we're going to put an end to fracking. That's day one. And we're going to set Colombia on a decade-long trajectory to phase out the use of fossil fuels and to reinvest in other areas. Petro's basic message, which I think resonates across the whole region, is that Colombia is not even a capitalist country. It's a feudal country. So what we need to do is put away those feudal ties, make the country productive, by which he means, for example, replace all the coca plants, which uh, you know are driving so much violence and extraction through the export of cocaine, which is only massively increased despite the commitment of the U.S., for example, to wage this war on drugs, right? Replace the coca plant with marijuana that can be much more sustainably farmed, can be legalized and become a productive industry for Colombia. So I think it's part of a broader vision about how to make Colombia's economy work for its people and how that productive shift can make Colombia a more peaceful country along the way. And my understanding is, you know, to, to that end of making Colombia a capitalist as opposed to a feudalist economy, Petro's been quite reassuring towards sort of global financial interests and sort of suggested we aren't going to be an enemy of capital. You're going to be welcome here, but you're just going to have to work in a more productive way than you have in the past. Is that correct? You know, I'm sympathetic to this position because I was, you know, having spent time in Colombia and seen the ways in which the Pacto Historico was basically blackmailed by anyone with money. You know, they had this special clause called the Petro Clause that said, if Petro wins, we're just going to leave the country. You know, so Petro was pushed into a position where there were certain if not concessions, then programmatic settlements that had to be found in the course of this presidential campaign. And one of them involved him basically, yeah, going on stage and saying, you know, I'm not going to expropriate your property. I am not Chavez. Now, of course, we can get into what expropriation even means, right? Certainly, you could point to a long history of more capitalist right-wing governments expropriating tons of property for their, you know, corrupt developmental projects that basically just funnel state money into their, into their friends' hands. So I think that uh, it's certainly true that Petro is not taking the most antagonistic view towards international finance. In fact, throughout the campaign was frequently tweeting, you know, Bank of America suggests that I have a good program. Credit Suisse suggests that I have a good program, these kinds of things. But he does speak in a language that would resonate with progressive forces, with left forces everywhere, which is about developing the forces of production. You know, part of getting out of feudalism is very much about saying, how can we actually make this country work? And that's why a ticket with Francia Marquez who's saying, look, these extractive industries, which are not only invading our territories, but destroying our lands, making them impossible to farm and do the kind of agroecological work that will make it sustainable over the medium term, we have to dispense with those industries and usher in a whole nationwide transformation in the economy and our understanding of what Colombia's export industries are going to be. That was David Adler speaking to me earlier today. And if you want to read more about the recent elections in Colombia, head over to navarromedia.com. There you can find this report by my colleague, Charlotte England. She's currently in Colombia. The link for that is also in the description box. Next story. As rail workers prepare to go on strike, the Tory PR machine has gone into overdrive trying to demonize them. The strategy has included an attempt to divide workers from different industries. A train driver has paid 
on average, medium salary, £59,000. A nurse, £31,000. A care worker, £21,000. Just to come back in, Mr Chaps, because you are uh, picking just the train drivers here. We know that these strikes are not just train drivers, is it? There's a lot more people on much lower salaries than that working Mm -hmm. on the the railways, aren't there, to be fair? Right, but the overall medium pay is £44,000. So this this is not a badly paid industry. That was Transport Secretary Grant Shapps, who is, in one sense, correct. The median wage of rail workers is £44,000. For RMT members, though, it's much lower, at £31,000. That's because they have fewer managers and drivers as members. Either way, and this should be obvious, poor pay in other sectors is not the fault of rail workers. It's just not. And using nurses as an example of why rail workers shouldn't get paid more is particularly grotesque. Of course, nurses are criminally underpaid, but the only people to blame for that are the Tories who, since 2010, have cut nurses' pay by a whopping 7%. Shap's other strategy has been to try to divide workers from their union. I don't think there's any need for uh, broader, more widespread um, strikes. I don't think there's any need for these strikes at all. And I appeal directly to people working for the railways. You are being led down a cul-de-sac by the union leadership, telling you that there's no pay rise when there is, uh, trying to uh, create some sort of class war when there's none to be had. We want people to be paid more. We want sensible reforms and modernization of our railways so we can run it for the passengers. If Grant Chaps was really interested in making the railways run for passengers, maybe he'd bring them into public ownership like they are in most of Europe. But the nub of his point is a claim that union bosses are misleading their workers. Now, it's important to note here, RMT members voted by a whopping 89% to go on strike, and that was on a massive 71% turnout. So the RMT's elected leadership would have had to have duped a hell of a lot of people if this was really a case of trickery from above. And an interview with one of Shap's colleagues the following day showed once and for all that that wasn't the case. You'll remember in that interview, Shap's assured rail workers they were in line for a pay rise. But this was Simon Clark, Chief Secretary to the Treasury, just 24 hours later. It's the right idea then to, um, for effectively rail workers to suffer a pay cut. Well, in the current situation, with, 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 with inflation, which is, a re- which, is, which is a real issue, we do have to be very, very sensitive that if we start having pay awards which take us uh, close to double digits, then we are going to see this problem prolonged. And that, and that, is, that is just the economic reality of, of where we find ourselves at the, at the moment. And, so is that a yes, then? Well, I'm not, I'm not I, as I say, I, I'm not the, the legal employer uh, in, 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 in this dispute. And so I'm not going to substitute myself for Network Rail or for the train operating companies. But we do absolutely need to have an understanding across the wider public sector that we cannot have inflation-busting pay increases because that will, in turn, drive the problem we're trying to solve. So, Transport Secretary Grant Shapp said rail workers were in line for a pay rise. Their union bosses were lying to them. But his colleague at the Treasury says that, in fact, rail workers should accept a pay cut. The implication of that statement for us all was made even more explicit in an interview Simon Clark did with Radio 4. The wider point here is pay discipline is going to be vitally important across the public sector if we are to avoid inflation becoming both more serious and of longer duration than it needs to be. Inflation destroys savings, destroys growth, destroys living standards. We are working very hard for our part to make sure that we, are, we manage that problem sensibly. And this is a part of that discussion. Is it unreasonable then to want a pay rise in line with inflation? 
in the current landscape of inflation at, at nine, bordering 10%, it is not a sustainable expectation that inflation uh, can be matched in payoffs. That is not something that's going to be seen across, frankly, the, the private sector as well as the public sector. We cannot get into a world where we are chasing inflation expectations in that way, because that is the surest way I can think of to bake in a repeat of the 1970s, which this government is determined to prevent. So to prevent further inflation, all workers should accept a real terms pay cut. That really is the line the government are going with, a pay cut for all. And don't be bamboozled by Simon Clark's language. There is no technocratic argument that workers should accept pay cuts or else runaway inflation is inevitable. The most obvious way we can see this is that inflation is already sky high, but wages are in real terms falling by 1.2%. That's according to the Office for National Statistics. And the other clue that Clark's demands are about class war, not sound economic management, is that he hasn't asked for restraint from anyone else. Like landlords, for example. In May this year, landlords were charging 10.6% more in rent than they were a year earlier. In London, it's 15.7%. In the Southwest, it's 11.5%. Now, those look like inflation-busting increases to me. So why hasn't Simon Clark asked landlords for pay restraint? Now, it goes without saying, workers would maybe be less keen for a pay rise if we weren't having to suffer 15% increases to our rent. Why aren't we talking about a rent price spiral instead of just a wage price spiral? Is it because this is more about class war than about sound economic management? The same can also be said about profits. In the first three months of this year, profits for UK firms were 8% higher than they were a year earlier. And for the biggest firms, it's even more dramatic. A new report from the IPPR and Commonwealth finds that the profits of Britain's largest non-financial companies were up 34% at the end of 2021 compared to pre-pandemic levels. They say that's rising significantly faster than inflation and wage growth. Unite the Union have also released a report stating that UK-wide company profits jumped 11.74% in the six months from October 2021 to March 2022. That's according to the most recent ONS data. In the same period, labour income only rose 2.6% and fell by 0.8% after accounting for inflation. This recent profit jump is responsible for 58.7% of inflation in the last half year, as opposed to just 8.3% due to labour costs. So, as you can see there, we have a situation where it is profits that is driving inflation, but you never ever see a minister on television saying what we think companies should do is they should hold down prices, even if that means they have to take smaller profits, because that's what you have to do to stop uh, an inflationary spiral. They don't say, oh, you know, they should, they should have profit restraint. They should say, we don't need to rise our prices. We'll take the hit. We'll keep our prices low. They never say that. These profits, this is just seen as natural, God-given. Of course, they will increase their profits. Of course, they will increase their prices if they can. It's going to be workers who have to take the hit. We're told we don't deserve pay rises. We can't have pay rises because that would lead to inflation. It's never, ever demanded of landlords, never, ever demanded of bosses. Barnaby, what's your take on this? I mean, obviously, it was, you know, it was an energy price hike which sparked this inflationary spiral. Now everyone else is allowed to enjoy it. Landlords, bosses, workers, we're the ones who have to show restraint. 
Absolutely. I mean, I think it helps to probe those analogies we're seeing now with the 1970s, because there's one crucial difference between our moment and the 70s. The 1970s crisis came after three decades of falling inequality and rising workers' power, rising unionization, for example, which led to a wage price spiral, as Tories are fond of pointing out. Well, now inflation comes after five decades of growing inequality and huge concentrations of wealth that ballooned through the pandemic for suppliers. And now price rises, caused in part by inter-imperialist conflict in Eastern Europe, are a new bonanza for energy firms. So we've got record wealth, record profits, Victorian levels of poverty as children skip meals for lack of money. And here is the class politics of inflation. Inflation is caused not by rising wages, but by rising energy prices, which then have a spin-off because lots of goods that we consume require oil to manufacture them. So, so lots of prices rise. So you've got a choice. Do you watch those prices rise? Do you watch energy bosses plan luxury holidays abroad as they rub their hands with joy? As there's a, a lower supply of energy, they're able to sell it at higher prices in Britain, even though we don't get our energy from Russia. Do you allow them, those few people at the top, to pocket big extra profits, and then say, oh dear, this is causing inflation, we'll tell workers they must fight inflation by falling living standards, including cutting 20 quid off universal credit so that some of the very poorest people in our society really can't afford to keep their homes and eat as well. If you do that, you can't claim it's just a technocratic fix. It is a class politics. Or do you control prices? Do you ban price rises beyond a certain point? Do you raise pay and benefits where prices do rise? And do you take demand out of the economy to deflate at the top with an excess profits tax, with rent controls, and with nationalizations to control prices and enable a green transition in the energy industry? It's a very clear and simple choice. Even Emmanuel Macron in France, rightly battered now with, uh, with support for the left against his plans to uh, punish older people by making their pension age rise. Even Emmanuel Macron, that neoliberal centrist politician, has a nationalized energy firm, which means that energy price rises in France are about 8%. In Britain, they're about 50%. So there are simple, clear things you can do, but it's a political choice. Having said it's different from the 70s, there's also one key respect, I think, which we should be aware, and it's too little discussed in the mainstream media, in which this is very similar to the 1970s, which is the big economic crises of the 70s were actually uh, sparked by an energy price shock caused by a, a crisis at the level of politics, the level of imperialism, Arab states wanting to boycott Western allies of the state of Israel. Now, of course, again, economic crises and geopolitical crises are utterly entangled. The energy price shocks that we face are heavily caused by Russia's war on Ukraine, Russia's criminal war on Ukraine, and Western sanctions against Russia. So you can't talk about the economic crisis without also talking about the geopolitics. You can't talk about a world which is increasingly fragmenting into inter-imperialist blocks, into rivalries between the United States and Russia and China. You can't avoid talking about that if you want to talk about the economic dislocations that are caused by that rivalry. So we need a politics capable of fusing a class politics here at home that wants to save working people from the great shocks of these uh, economic calamities with an anti-imperialist politics that wants to ask questions about the descent of the world into rival blocks. We also need information. It's really great that you're talking here about surveys done by Unite, by the IPPR, by Commonwealth. I've just seen last week that Sharon Graham, the General Secretary of Unite, is going to be funding PhDs in economics for the Unite Trade Union. In this world in which our political questions are increasingly complex and technical, we need historians, I hope, I hope I can be useful there. We need economists. We need people making the arguments for our side and revealing the deceptions and the manipulations that the other side who control most of our press uh, prosecute every day. You forgot to mention people that host YouTube shows, Barnaby. I feel very left out. 
We will move on, though. Um, you mentioned um, the concentration of wealth at the top over the coronavirus pandemic. It's important to to stay with that because, and this is especially a bigger talking point in the US, but you will hear a lot of people, even in this country, blame inflation on spending during the COVID crisis. They'll say ordinary people were just given too much money. And it's important to note, to be clear, that's also complete bullshit. According to a 2021 article in the Financial Times, as the coronavirus spread, central banks injected $9 trillion into economies worldwide, aiming to keep the world economy afloat. Much of that stimulus has gone into financial markets and from there into the net worth of the ultra-rich. The total wealth of billionaires worldwide rose by $5 trillion to $13 trillion in 12 months, the most dramatic surge ever registered on the annual billionaire list compiled by Forbes magazine. Now, in relation to that US context and the connection between this corporate giveaway and inflation, Crystal Ball made this excellent point. Part of this inflationary problem is because we put too much money into the economy. There's way too much government spending, and that's why we have inflation. So that's a large part of that. That is, um, it's that basic is, economics. And that then is secondly, not basic economics. Uh, we had this thing is. called a pandemic. We had a supply chain crisis. Okay. And oh, yeah, by the way, well, there's well, a war. Well, well, it's a role. It's played so a role. So to act like the only reason okay. we have and, problems and you now act, is because people got a little bit of money in their whoa, bank whoa, whoa, account whoa. is just not honest. And you, a little bit of money, they got more than we spent in World War II. So you but, act, don't act but like... Hold on, hold on. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on. Don't act like... You said don't act. Don't act like we had to react to the pandemic exactly the way we did. We We had to spend $6 Okay, but how about... The trillions that the Federal Reserve shot at Wall Street. For some reason, people don't what? get upset about that. I, how much? And that fueled the trillions of dollars the Federal Reserve shot at Wall Street to backstop the stock market and the bond market. No one well, gets upset about that, uh, even though well, that was a massive I, I don't factor know what you're in inflation. Talking about. What do you mean shot at Wall Street? Well, what are we talking about? They, we're talking about buying assets, buying stocks, buying bonds, buying treasury bills when? so that they expand the balance this? sheet. This is during the crisis, the coronavirus crisis, when the stock market crashed. That is what the Fed did. They went into action. They shot trillions of dollars. But the stock market didn't crash no. during COVID. Now it's they, crashing. It did it's crash. crashing now. It crashed and the Fed came in and backstopped it. That's what happened. What, it crashed so and we never heard I'm about saying. it? No, it crashed. Go back and look at it. I think when, it when, fell off a cliff. When? The Treasury bond market stopped functioning and the Fed took extraordinary action it's never taken in history. I don't somehow no one that. gets upset. Maybe the first week of the someone, Somehow nobody gets upset about the rich people who got tons of money and tons of support, oh, yeah. way more than working class people did. Sure but oh do. my God, people were able to feed their kids and they had a little bit of money in their bank accounts. It was the worst thing in the world. No. That is one small part of the inflation story. And is, by the way, not the only thing that we can deal with to get out of this mess. So well put. And I should say, you know, we, we don't normally wade too deeply into US debates, but I thought that was worth showing just because we are seeing the same debate everywhere, the same arguments everywhere. The reality, the rich got richer over the pandemic. That fueled asset price spirals, which along with a war in Ukraine fueled inflation. Yet it's ordinary workers who are blamed and who are expected to pay for the crisis. <laughs> We've seen this before. It's the same script over again. Barnaby, for me, the most stunning bit of that exchange was the fact that Bill Maher had just completely forgotten that there was a crisis in the stock market at the start of the coronavirus pandemic. And that government did step in. There was a massive bailout from the Fed, just as there was in this country. Do you think his ignorance there is also representative of, of the media here and the media conversation we have in this country? Yes, it's an extraordinary 
revelation, isn't it? About not that it's that surprising about the different levels of focus that are targeted on the actions of the rich and the actions of the poor. You know, we had a whole TV series in Britain screened in prime time on Channel 4 a few years ago, dedicated to the constant monitoring of the lives of some of the poorest people on benefits and investigating whether they could be seen as feckless and were wasting their money. We've never had a series delving in in documentary style to the lives of the uh, super wealthy in order to show them as feckless and corrupt and defending their wealth and power by dodgy means that impoverish everyone else. We've never had a fly on the wall camera in their homes because they wouldn't allow it. And so we have a media that constructs a political sphere, not entirely of its own accord, but in coordination, not always open and deliberate, but, but in, in practical coordination with politicians, we have a media class that constructs our gaze to look at the actions of the poor and not the wealthy. Bill Maher doesn't even know uh, all the ways in which the American state has defended the wealthy. And these things are both covert and overt, right? So you have the contracts being handed out in the pandemic in Britain to a mate of the health secretary, even though this person had absolutely no experience making personal protective equipment, but was given millions of pounds, tens of millions of pounds of government money because he was a friend of the health secretary. That's just sheer corruption. But you also have bank bailouts where senior bankers uh, drive the economy into ruin. Lots of people lose their jobs. And some of those senior bankers keep their jobs and keep their massive benefits. Or Philip Green, who drives his company to ruin and keeps his luxury yacht while his workers lose their pensions. That's all perfect. And it's not called corruption because it's just integral to what a class society, what capitalism is. Tax evasion is illegal. But if you do tax avoidance, minimizing your tax liabilities, that's perfectly legal. If you call yourself a company or stash your wealth overseas like the chancellor's wife. But of course, the line between what's illegal and what's legal is all a political decision. So the free market is just not a very good framework for understanding our world. The very language of the free market is itself ideological. It's better to think in terms of class power. In the name of free market incentives, they demolish any structures of the state that redistribute wealth from the rich to the poor, whether that's the NHS or youth clubs or council housing or legal aid. And then they use the state to protect themselves, the wealthy, policing working class communities to discipline them, harassing the people they bomb and impoverish if those people try to run across borders to safety, passing laws to stop people under attack from protesting freely now and to stop workers from striking. When railway workers go on strike in Britain now, we see government ministers talk about changing the law again after they passed a high threshold for strike action to basically ban them from striking with minimum staffing levels. So the state is a contested tool. But all of this is the use of state power to enrich the wealthy while launching moral panics to divide the poor. So don't think in terms of free markets versus state intervention on the left. Think in terms of who uses the state and to whose ends. Because right now we have a kind of oligarchic capitalism where franchising on the railways broke down in the pandemic because people weren't traveling as much by railway. So government stepped in with contracts that meant companies, rail companies, still got paid by the state whether they ran services or not with 500 million pounds in profits for railway companies during a pandemic when people weren't using the railways. That's not free markets. That's an oligarchic capitalism. Let's go on to our next story. It won't come as a surprise to learn that GB News doesn't support the railway strikes. And to promote the view that nobody else does, they did an interview with a taxi driver. From the question they ask, it's clear they assumed he would slag off the strikers. But take a look at what happened next. It's tough times for the taxi drivers, and it's even tougher times now that these rail strikes are going to put a squeeze on, on, your, on your trade. Yeah, First and foremost, I want to say that the uh, men and women of the train unions are totally, totally, totally 100% back them. They have a right to stand up for the working rights. Um, 
And it's unfortunate that we don't have more uh, unions that are strong enough to stand up for that. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm an ex-coal miner myself, so I believe in the union structure. Uh, but yeah, I totally support them. If it has to bite on us, then so be it. You know, we're prepared to do that. You know, we made a stronger stuff around these parts. Thanks, Craig. Thanks for talking You're to welcome. me. <laughs> it's a tough time for taxi drivers, and I'm sure it's going to get tougher when the railway workers go on strike. Be fair, I'm not even sure why that's true, because presumably more people are going to take taxis when the trains don't work. But anyway, we'll leave that to one side. He assumed that taxi driver was going to say, oh, yes, I can't believe they've, they've gone on strike in a time that was already difficult to me. He says, actually, no, I understand trade unions. I used to be a miner. I'm absolutely in favor of people taking strike action to defend their pay. He's like, okay, thanks. Thanks for speaking to us. See ya. He, he didn't want to ask any more to that guy. That was not the guy he wanted to speak to on GB News. Barnaby, obviously, you know, I love seeing clips like that. Obviously, the whole dominant narrative in the media is trying to divide the people in the RMT, railway workers and people who use the railways or any other worker whatsoever. So it's, it's RMT versus the world, not it's RMT versus the bosses. But it's great when so many people have basically, you know, seen through that lie. Yeah, the funny thing about that interview, uh, the confusion in the face of the interviewer is that, of course, a minute ago, people like that taxi driver were heroes of the right wing press. They were constructed as honest working class people. The Tories said they were now the party of the working class. One MP even suggested changing their name to the Workers' Party because they were trying to prosecute a culture war in which they claimed to defend working class people who were threatened by basically other poor people who were darker than them or more desperate than them or, or from various different minorities. And so here the emptiness of that Tory talk of championing workers is really revealed. Workers are championed only when they are subservient, when they're glad to be workers and doff their caps, when they're deferential, when they're celebrating the queen or attacking poor people on benefits or poor people who are refugees or anyone who's trans. When it's about standing up for themselves for a better life against the profiteering wealthy, workers then, of course, become villains, terrifying. And you see that the, 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 the specter of, of, of evil groups against which the whole of the society must uh, defend itself in a moral panic, can easily apply to workers, even if they're white, just as it can apply to refugees and to LGBT people and to Muslims and so on. So workers even become disloyal to the nation when they go on strike. The Telegraph, the Daily Telegraph, accuses the RMT of being in league with Putin. Well, we hear sometimes about a choice between class politics and identity politics, including on the left. Really, you can have an identity politics of anything or what we used to call on the left an emancipatory politics, a politics that dreams of freedom. You can have an identity politics of class just as you can of race or gender, a politics that says, I'm a worker, that's all I ever want to be, I want to doff my cap to the boss and do as I'm told. Or an emancipatory politics of class, just as you can of race and gender, that says, I'm a worker, I'm exploited in the workplace, I am talented and skilled and I do crucial work that keeps society afloat, but I don't want to be dominated, alienated, exploited, oppressed every day when I go into the workplace by a boss and by a free market that can lob me out of a job any moment. I want instead to have control over the conditions of my livelihood. That is the kind of politics of class. That's the kind of politics of working class histories and traditions that that taxi driver knows because he was a minor and that the Tory party will never, ever understand. That GB News interview came just as the RMT confirmed that the largest rail strikes in 30 years will now go ahead. Here's General Secretary Mick Lynch. Faced with such an aggressive agenda of cuts to jobs, conditions, pay and pensions, the RMT has no choice but to defend our members industrially and to stop this race to the bottom. The strikes on network rail, the train operators and London Underground will go ahead and we again call on our members 
to stand firm, support the action, mount the pickets and demonstrate their willingness to fight for workplace justice. The RMT supports the campaign for a square deal for all working people in the face of the cost of living crisis. And our current campaign is a part of that more general campaign that means that public services have to be properly funded and all workers paid properly with good conditions. We remain available for discussions during the action and after the action and between the strike dates if the companies want to engage with us. But we are firmly of the belief that the only way for us to settle this dispute is for Grant Shapps and the government to allow these companies to negotiate and let the parties reach a reasonable agreement that will end the disruption of the service, will secure jobs and allow a decent transport system to be developed in this country. Lynch went on to squarely lay the blame at the government's door. To be fair to the companies, we have kept up cordial relationships with the employers all the way through this. But what we have got come to understand is that the dead hand of this Tory government is all over this dispute. And the fingerprints of Grant Shapps and the DNA of Rishi Sunak are all over the problems on the railway and indeed the problems in this society. And until they allow these employers to negotiate freely, I can't see that we're going to get a settlement uh, to the issues that are in front of us. That was very poetically put. Later in the House of Commons, Transport Secretary Grant Shapps made this statement. We're now less than eight hours away from the biggest railway strike since 1989. A strike orchestrated by some of the best paid union barons representing some of the better paid representing some of the better paid workers in this country, which will cause misery and chaos to millions of commuters. And Mr Speaker, this weekend we've seen union leaders use all the tricks in the book to confuse, to obfuscate, to mislead the public. Not only do they wish to drag the railway back to the 1970s. They're also employing the tactics of bygone unions too, deflecting accountability for their strikes onto others, attempting to shift the blame uh, for their action that will cause disruption and will cause damage to millions of people, and claiming that others are somehow preventing an agreement to their negotiation. So there's Grant Shapps accusing unions of failing to take responsibility for their actions and of shifting blame to other people. Of course, this is a line that suits the government very well. It deflects from their own failures while building animosity to the unions amongst the public. But it turns out that Shapps is just lying. And Paul War, writing in The Eye, brought the receipts. He reports, Now, Sources within the train operating companies, the TOCs, that run services on behalf of the Department of Transport have revealed that talks are deadlocked because they are not being allowed to properly negotiate with the RMT. Under the franchise model that had operated since the industry was privatised in the 1990s, rail firms were individually able to set detailed pay awards along with work terms and conditions. But the COVID pandemic's huge hit to passenger numbers led Transport Secretary Grant Shapps to scrap the model and replace it with a system where the state effectively controls the railways by paying a flat fee to firms that keep services or that kept services running. In the process, individual rail companies have been left in a state of limbo when it comes to negotiating disputes with unions. So why did Shapps change the model? Well, because Rishi Sunak told him to. 
So they say the government wants the railways to reduce costs by about 10%. A 4 billion annual taxpayer subsidy became roughly 12 billion in COVID years. And the Treasury has said, said that that rail subsidy must be slashed. That was Paul War in the eye. And apparently it's not just the unions that are unhappy about this. The rail companies hate it too. A source told the I, we are in talks with the RMT, but I can understand the union getting frustrated because all we are allowed to talk about is the overall boundaries. None of the TOCs have been given a clear mandate to negotiate detailed pay rates. If we get the right reforms to weekend working practices we want and the union engage on staffing levels, I reckon we could hammer out a deal on pay. Without a mandate from government, we can't even address the pay question. Barnaby, so it seems that the Tories are being pretty duplicitous here. They're saying in public, this is just the unions gagging for a fight. They're being offered a pay rise. Why are they complaining? At the same time, they've got government ministers going out saying, no, they can't possibly get a pay rise because that would be inflationary. And all while this is going on, you've got the people who actually, you know, run the rail companies, who I'm not normally particularly sympathetic towards, saying, you know, if the government just kept out of this, we probably could come to some kind of deal. It is so depressing. I mean, let me put it this way. Public transport ought to be key to a green transition. So rather than cutting 2,000 jobs, as Network Rail have threatened to the RMT, rather than forcing an 8% real terms pay cut, because we've got inflation, onto low-paid cleaners and highly skilled engineers who have all had real pay cuts for three years in a row, rather than all of that, we should be rolling out new railways everywhere as part of a strategy to make travel easier and less carbon intensive. So this strike is a kind of image of a government that thrashes around in chaos rather than grasping the big challenges of our times. You know, they chase headlines putting electronic tags on refugees in the hope of winning votes by attacking the most desperate people. They chase headlines by scapegoating low-paid workers who are desperately needed for a climate transition because they have no answers for an age of entwined economic, social, and ecological crisis. But part of the tragedy here is that no politician in Britain today is proposing the kind of bold strategy, at least no leading politician, not Boris Johnson and not Keir Starmer, the kind of bold strategy that would pay workers well to do the work we need done to transition our economy and our society to face the challenges of catastrophic climate change. Those answers aren't coming from above. They're not coming from the top. Our whole party politics is stuck in a kind of staid moderation. Without a state project to solve these problems, people have to take things into their own hands. People can't rely on government to sort it for them. People have to do things like going on strike to ensure they get decent pay and decent conditions. That's why it's not just RMT members, it's teachers in the NASUWT, it's nurses, it's posties in the CWU. All of these groups are now talking about preparing to ballot for possible industrial action, for possible strikes, because they're demanding, they know that's the only way by fighting back themselves that they can get decent pay and decent conditions. And if they don't act, even though it will be inconvenient for lots of people, if they don't act, we'll continue to spiral into a society where a tiny clique of the wealthy few get all of the resources and inflation is used to launch a stealth class war, further impoverishing most of our society. The unions then aren't just causing some temporary inconvenience, they're also the only bastion in defense of the 99% against a, a very small wealthy clique. And so I think we should salute the RMT today. Our final story for the evening. It was the scoop of the weekend, a story about political cronyism, an extramarital affair and domestic drama in 10 Downing Street. But it then became a vanishing act. The Times wiped their explosive story from the record. 
What began as a juicy story grew into an even juicier one, and Boris Johnson learnt a lesson in how not to cover up a scandal. This was the story in question. Its headline blared that Johnson tried to give Carrie top foreign office job during a fair, and the Times report, or reported, Johnson, who was Foreign Secretary from July 2016 to July 2018, wanted to install Carrie Simmons to the position of his Chief of Staff on a salary of at least £100,000. But allies intervened, fearing it would be a flagrant abuse of ethics. Quote, it would have left him dangerously exposed, an ally who was involved in the veto said. Staff learnt of the affair after an MP allegedly walked in on the pair in a, quote, compromising situation in Johnson's Commons office in early 2018. At this time, Boris Johnson was still married to his then wife, Marina Wheeler. The Times go on to say, free of Johnson's aides, including Ben Gascoigne, now one of his deputy chiefs of staff and a friend of Wheeler, threatened to resign over the proposed appointment. So this seems, oh, first of all, actually, they also said the Times has identified and contacted four allies of Johnson who know of the matter, three, two of whom were given ministerial jobs when Johnson became prime minister in 2019, spoke in return for anonymity. One said, quote, an illicit relationship with, with Carrie was none of our business. Making her chief of staff was definitely our business. Our job was to protect him. He kept saying she would be great in the job. We knew what was going on between them and that it was an insane risk to let him do it, unquote. So this seems like a pretty big story. Boris Johnson tried to shoehorn a woman with whom he was having an affair into a powerful taxpayer-funded role. As the relationship was secret, he would not have been able to declare it, and he only backed down from this plan after senior aides threatened to quit. However, despite its obvious newsworthiness, on Saturday morning, the article mysteriously disappeared. It was only included in the earliest edition of the Times, and now appears nowhere on their website. So, what happened? Well, one possibility is that the story was found to be factually inaccurate. Perhaps Simon Walters, who wrote the story, had made a mistake, or perhaps he'd relied on unreliable sources. Well, he certainly doesn't think so. After the article was pulled, Walters told the New European this, I stand by the story 100%. I was in lengthy and detailed communication with number 10 at a high level, Ben Gascoigne and Mrs. Johnson's spokeswoman, for up to 48 hours before the paper went to press. At no point did any of them offer an on-the-record denial of any element of the story, nor have any of these three offered an on-the-record denial to me since. Number 10 and Mr. Gascoigne did not deny it off the record either. And others have come out to vouch for the claims made in the article. Dan Hodges is a columnist for the Mail. On Sunday, he tweeted this. Just on the Simon Walters story, I've now spoken to two separate sources who I trust completely, who confirm Boris did attempt to employ Carrie at the Foreign Office whilst he was Foreign Secretary. And Dominic Cummings went even further. So he tweeted, the missing story pulled by Times after number 10 Friday, Friday, after number 10 called on Friday night is true. Walters repeatedly published accurate stories, e.g. on illegal donations. Times pathetic to have folded and should reverse ferret. Truth is worse. The trolley, that's what he calls Boris Johnson, wanted to appoint girlfriend to government job in the third quarter of 2022. So Cummings is suggesting that number 10 applied pressure to the Times to withdraw the article and also that Johnson tried to hire Simmons again in 2020. 
And that first claim, at least, has since been confirmed. The Independent reports this. Mr Johnson's official spokesperson confirmed that number 10 was in contact with the Times before and after the publication of the first edition, but denied that the Prime Minister himself had contacted Deputy Editor Tony Gallagher, who was in charge of the paper that night. And according to The Guardian, the sequence of events has left staff bemused. They write... Journalists at the Times were baffled by the decision to withdraw Saturday's story, with multiple sources suggesting there had been a high-level intervention to remove it. The paper's editor, John Witherow, is reported to be off work. His deputy, Tony Gallagher, edited the newspaper on Friday, with multiple sources saying he made the call to drop the story from later editions. Now, it's of course possible that Johnson called the deputy editor of the Times, or someone from his office did. What I'm even more keen to know, though, is whether Boris Johnson speed-dialed Rupert Murdoch. Either way, it gives a window into the frequently crooked relationship between the government and our billionaire-owned press. Barnaby, is the cover-up here even worse than the original crime? Imagine how this would be narrated if it were an African country. Imagine how a patronising anthropologist from afar might describe Britain if we were, uh, say, an African country. Uh, This is a land whose highest tribal chiefs don't work. They just wave at parades and cut ribbons to open buildings. The royal family, we call these chiefs, and everyone else pays for them and their team of helpers from the lower echelons of this ruling tribe, which the locals call the Etonians. And politics in this society isn't about ideas. It's about tribal conflict. That's what you have to understand. It's about tribes standing up for themselves. So Boris Johnson can advocate asylum for undocumented migrants when he's the London chieftain, but then deports those migrants to Rwanda when he becomes the national chieftain. The ideas don't matter. He's not loyal to them. He's only in the Tory party because it is the party of his tribe. And so he uses it to ensure that his friends and fellow members of his tribe can be enriched and protected and get good jobs. Now, replace the word tribe with class, replace the word sleaze, so often used in Britain, with corruption, And you see how all the sneering language through which Westerners talk of Africa or South America, in fact, describes realities far more acute, far more sharp here in Britain. Small cliques monopolizing wealth and power and then using political institutions from the state to the media, which is pliant enough to delete inconvenient stories, using political institutions to defend and secure their control. And then they even have the gall to tell other people to take back control with a straight face because they've done so well at conjuring other enemies to keep them in place. That is the challenge of a ruling class trying to maintain itself in a democratic society. So this is shot through with all of the kinds of realities of tribal loyalty or class power that would be sneered at if they happened anywhere else in the world. But when it happens in Britain, we should still call it corruption too. You always get this very frustrating thing where if the left suggests that this kind of thing happens, that there is a direct line between politicians and editors or proprietors, and that affects coverage, people say, oh, you're being so conspiratorial. Journalists are completely independent. I've never been told what to publish or what not to be published. Then you get clear, direct evidence of it, and essentially an admission. You know, number 10 have said, we did speak to them before and after publication. And then you get all the same people saying, oh, well, of course this happens. Of course, you're going to have uh, conversations between politicians and media proprietors and editors. Don't be so naive. They're sort of knowingly, why are you outraged? Of course, we all knew this. I find uh, that sort of two-facedness very, very frustrating. Um, As an aside, so moving away from sort of the serious story here, lots of people have said this is an example of the Streisand effect. That's when an attempt to hide a story actually 
makes it a bigger deal. I've always understood what the phrase meant. You know, if it's a Streisand effect, you say, I don't want you to look at this and everyone looks at it. But I didn't actually know the background or what it actually had to do with Barbara Streisand. So I looked into it today and it is a pretty good story. So it goes like this. In 2003, Streisand sued a photographer for taking a photo of her massive Malibu mansion and publishing it online. He'd taken the picture as part of a campaign to trap coastal erosion. It was one of 12,000 similarly anonymous photographs of coastline properties. So interested in, in the coastline as much as the property. By the time Streisand sued, the picture had been downloaded only six times, and two of those times were by her own lawyers. But once the lawsuit became public, it was downloaded 420,000 times in a single month. Barnaby, um, when will these people learn that once something's online, it's online forever? I suppose, unless you get a super injunction. Yeah, as so often happens, Michael, I wish I shared your optimism. Uh, you know, the story here seems to me to be how effective the silencing of corruption generally is. Perhaps that will change. But as of now, we have a country where the poorest people are vilified by the state and media as lazy if they can't find work and greedy if they work hard and go on strike for decent pay. It's almost as if the thing is set up to ensure that if you're not rich, you can't win. While the rich and powerful channel cash and jobs to their friends and lovers on an industrial scale and our free press, our gloriously free press, gives them a gloriously free pass, sometimes because journalists can easily be bullied by spin doctors in Downing Street, and sometimes just because they're part of the same class as these people. They respect them, they like them, and they take them at their word, where they don't give the same kind of uh, free pass to poorer people. So I'm not so optimistic, but let's live in hope that in an age of social media, uh, there is a bit more openness and these stories uh, can't so easily be chilled and silenced. So as I mentioned uh, at the start of the show, um, you are going to get more of Barnaby's cynicism over the next seven days. That's because I'm going to Glastonbury, working behind a bar because Navarro Media still hasn't been invited to left field. If you're watching Billy Bragg, do get in touch for next time around. But Barnaby will be standing in for me on Wednesday and Monday. Um, I think Aaron's going to be doing a special show on Friday for the by-election. So Barnaby, thank you. Thank you so much for liberating me so I can go hang out in a field for a few days. It is my pleasure, Michael. I look forward to it, but you will be much missed. Thank you for watching this evening. Tisky Sour will be back on Wednesday at 7pm. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.